Movement Rio Media presents A Few Good Physios with Dr. Eric Munoz and Dr. Leonidas Scantolides. You can't handle the truth. What is physical therapy? More research. More research. True therapeutic effect. Join us each week as we discuss current trends in medicine, rehabilitation, and strength and conditioning. The answers are out there. All content is a collaboration between On Point Sports Care and Integrated PT Squared. A Few Good Physios is not medical advice and is used for educational purposes only. If you are having pain and or health-related complaints, please seek out a licensed healthcare professional. Thank you for downloading. Enjoy. All right, all right, all right. So, episode five: clinical commentary in the cervical. Um, but before we get started, I I wanted to quickly go over uh, or maybe rant about something. Mm. A there was a, an account that I follow on social media called the New Grad Physical Therapist or New Grad Physio, and this account both on Twitter and I think also on Instagram. But I, I mainly follow him on tri- Twitter. So he wrote a big long blog he's leaving the profession um and it was it was pretty sad because he he's only been out for i think two or three years right. he used to provide very insightful content uh, research articles patient cases um all these things that were benefiting our profession and, and he also had a an incredible following of the leaders of our profession as well a lot of respect and so he wrote a really th- thorough blog about why. <laughs> oh, bless you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, thank God. He no. <laughs> <laughs> didn't get the mic. He sneezed on the mic. <laughs> um. uh, he, uh, he, he wrote a thorough blog about you know where our profession is and, and why he's leaving. And it's got mainly to do with things that we've already talked about in our previous podcasts about where the system is in the United States in terms of physical therapy and uh, the patient's mindsets coming in, uh, inability to uh, make a gigantic effect on patients and get through and also get uh, get through with doctors and things like that. Uh, we'll definitely put a link on whatever website is linked to this podcast to that blog that way you could check it out for yourselves. But, um, yeah, it, w- it was it's, – it's pretty sad. And the reason why it, it's sad is because – that individual had a high potential to continue to fil- facilitate change within our profession. Was this gentleman, uh, was he based out of UK? No, I but think he was in the States. Uh, you yeah. sent, the one you sent me. He was in the UK? UK. I, I'm not sure. Uh, let's double check. Yeah, I'm going to uh, look at it right now. And I don't know if someone responded and they were in the UK. But, um, yeah, I mean, he brought up all the key factors and just to comment on that, I would say, I mean, sad that he's leaving. Um, the same token, going back to our previous podcast, you know, if those changes are so significant, excuse me, if the, the conditions of the, um, the industry are so significant that you feel like you need to leave the profession, obviously go for it. But the other option is to create your own, your own, you know, your own system outside of the system, right. uh, so to speak. Um, what I mean by that is if you don't like the clinic you're at, you know, I mean, obviously there's um, barriers to, to exit, but it sounds like this guy tapped out pretty quickly. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think he was only a couple of years in. Sorry, it's taken so long to. So yeah, new grad. Um, and yeah, there was the other thing too. He had a lot of resources on his site for getting jobs. Um, obviously for a new grad physical therapist, giving them education. Uh, I don't know why this is not coming up. Here I sent. When did I send that to you? Last week. Mm. Last week. We're gonna pull that up because oh, there was quite a few um, comments on it. Yeah. So Mary O'Keefe commented on it. If you don't know who she is, she's a very well-known physical therapist in New York, and he uh, got the attention of all these influential physical therapists. So he is a recently, <laughs> he calls himself recently-ish qualified physio working in both NHS and private musculoskeletal clinics. Um, NHS, so I think that might be the... In the UK? UK, yeah. Okay. So yeah, so he, he wasn't working in the United States for some reason. I had that impression. But still, that that's even more significant, I feel, because the system is somewhat different over there uh, in terms of how it is. But the main theme of it was not being able to have, not being able to use the tools he has to make an effective change with patients based on the barriers that he keeps encountering, things that we've already talked about with misinformation, patients' mindsets, uh, Western medicine mindsets in terms of musculoskeletal pain, the lack of adaptation of our new pain science model or how slow it's becoming, obviously the the model of uh, high-volume clinics, 15, 20 patients, uh, 12 patients a day, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, was, it was sad. I feel like individuals like this, the re- reason why it, it takes me back is because I see too many people who shouldn't be there, and, f- and they're, they're going to still be there in 10 years. You know, Unfortunately, they're just kind of hiding in the background doing ultrasound and doing all these low-value treatments, and they continue to treat patients and not push our profession forward nor um, kind of contribute to our profession that could be slowing slowing down in 10 years. If we had more people like this individual in the field and trying to affect change and try to make a change, then I think we would keep going forward as a profession as a majority of physical therapists. But yeah. Yeah, yeah looking at, yeah, just re- rereading some of this and it, you know, he was, it was a well thought out um, exit um, in terms of, you know, just his frustrations. But yeah, again, I'm not sure the system, I'm not, too clear on how the system works over there. I know that there's a, it's kind of like a United, uh, excuse me, a universal healthcare system there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, as Lee said, pretty sad because this guy seems like he had a, a lot to offer the profession, not only on a national level, obviously on an international level if Lee Man was following him, <laughs> right? So um, it's... Um, I do yeah. my best to find the best people. <laughs> that's it best of the best um but yeah you know to all those new grads out there you know don't um don't get out just start something new yeah and and th- you did mention uh, something if it's if the system's not working in the sense that you thought it would then try to branch out that would be the first thing you know the amount of work that it would take to be that it takes to become a physical therapist or a physiotherapist is a lot. It's a big sacrifice, big commitment, and it takes time to become one. So with that sacrifice, maybe try to invest in it a little bit more. But of course, if if you're 
uh, aware enough of yourself, like I, I don't want to invest any more in it, and you want to um, continue on with something else, and you could do something else. But if you still have interest in it, and you still have some passion for it, and then may, you know, kind of adapt to the times with social media, blogs, um, podcasts, um, you know, providing content for websites, uh, you know, things like that. And maybe he's going to do that as well. Maybe he, this guy, will be able to go yeah, down a different talk, path talking about a, a colleague Teach. of ours that mm-hmm. um we were chatting about who was um shared the same concerns as this guy that that's uh leaving the profession and he brought up barriers to me and you know i uh, during that conversation kind of told him hey you know it, it's kind of a mm-hmm. mindset also of thinking you know when when you're kind of getting beat up uh, in terms of overworked at the clinic um overutilized overutilized, underpaid, um, not well rested, start to lose that kind of passion for what you're doing. Mm. Just realize that there there are options out there. And and for those of you who live in New York City, California, uh, probably some parts of Florida, you know, the resources are flush. So what I mean by that is there's, there's options out there in terms of finding, as Lee said, you know, using social media to leverage your skill set, podcast, but most importantly, just hitting, you know, just your, your network. Um, and what all those social media uh, is targeting is, is getting into a good network. And with the right network, you know, sky's the limit. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's key. Oh, no. So with that, um, let's continue on with uh, our clinical commentary on the neck. The neck. Oh, yeah. C- cervical. So the neck pretty complex so complex Mm -hmm. that the research can't agree how the neck moves but i'll let you um, oh yeah that's right (laughs) that's a funny uh, that's a good way to start a good place to start when we when we were in school we learned uh the neck can be primarily split up split up into two different areas so you have your upper cervical spine and your lower cervical spine the upper cervical spine are mainly two joints so your uh, C1, C2, and some would argue the occiput on uh, the atlas as well. So that is where our uh, skull moves on top of our cervical spine, and there is about 50% of our rotation there. And some would argue that there's different movement at that those two joints versus the lower cervical spine or the rest of the um, vertebra. And so as we talked about last time with the lumbar, there's there's seven main cervical vertebra. So C1 through C7. So technically C3 through C7 is the lower, and they move one way, and C1, C2, and um, the occiput and C1, they move a different way. Right. Uh, so that we learned that in school that they're, they're different, but actually when we started studying for this wonderful test uh, in orthopedics, we learned that that is a controversy, or that's not the case. Not the case. I mean, they really, I think it comes back to what we've mentioned in the previous podcast, that, the re, you know, they haven't been able to investigate on a live person yeah. how their vertebrae articulate with one another. Um, I know in school we learned these coupling motions of mm-hmm. the neck uh, where if someone rotates their head to the left, there is a coupled movement of side bending to the left uh, and side gliding to the right, I guess, to that extent. Right. Um, 
you know, I still, I think um, clinically, I try to use that as a bit of a framework when assessing the neck, but that's just for my, to put put a framework on it. Uh, but as we studied, there there is no research that kind of backs the biomechanics uh, of the neck. Right. Yeah, and, and that's interesting. I mean, that, and that wh- why that's important for us when we see restrictions in the neck, and ideally we want to improve those restrictions, or, or sorry, decrease those restrictions, improve motion, then we have to mobilize the joints. And to do a proper mobilization, we have to understand how those joints move. So we'll elicit those movements while we mobilize the joint after the assessment. Um, interestingly enough, uh, in terms of stats, the uh that we talked about with low back was the number one cause of disability um and injury in the united states at least or if not in the world and i think neck is number two yes yeah so it's if uh neck is number two behind the low back um and that's uh, from clinically we would expect that for sure uh yeah sorry neck pain is the second most expensive injury in the United States versus low back. Um, a low percentage of people, around 5%, uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, about 30 to 37% will develop chronicity, which is in further the neck pain is greater than six months before. When we talked about low back pain, it was greater than three months. So that's interesting to us because we, I do see a lot of chronic neck injuries, and primarily it, they'll have like this, this um, similar history to them. Usually, it's an individual who had gone through a trauma years ago, maybe a motor vehicle accident, car accident, getting you know diagnosed with whiplash, and they might not have a neck injury per se at the time, no like fractured vertebra or anything like that, anything that they had to get in an intervention for, and then years go by, and then they quote have a bad neck, and that bad neck would flare up during these unknown instances. But what we know now about pain science. It's consistent, at least for the patients I've seen clinically, with an increase in stress, an increase of um, stress load. It doesn't have to be, you know, uh, a certain terrible situations ha- happen to them and then the stre- the neck pain comes on. It could just be usual work uh, stress, but an increase in that load over time, whatever it is, maybe a couple of days or lack of sleep, things like that. I don't know if you find the same oh, thing. I've definitely... Um I make a joke of it with a lot of clients, mm-hmm. the, um, and my my unofficial diagnosis is New York neck uh, <laughs> or New York City neck, where you know here in New York City we're all kind of to some extent uh, under a different level of stress. The people, the sounds, the noise, um, the attitude in the street. I mean, whatever it is, but I think here in New York we're subject to many different stresses um, mm-hmm. on a day to day operation. So. I would say New Yorkers are somewhat, some, most of us, and this is a big generalization, are, are definitely wound up a bit. Mm-hmm. So uh, for most people, and, and this I've heard clinically too, oh, I hold my stress in my neck. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually have a tight neck. And, and people just associate that with with the norm. Uh, I think many people don't know what it is to feel unrestricted mm-hmm. or to be not as stressed. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, stress is a part of, Stress is a healthy part of life. It's just, I guess, what it comes down to is our management of it. And often some of these high-profile executives or um, it's just New York in general. I don't want to put it in a, any kind of demographic, but 
typically plays out in neck pain. Mm. Um, and as, as people say, I have a bad back, a bad knee, a bad neck. Usually the neck is a reoccurrence. Um, there is mm. a, a high level of reoccurrence with the neck, partially because I think people don't treat it, um, treat it, they let it go. Um, so what else to speak on the neck? Um, you know, I guess there are different levels of severity, right? I mean, um, as we'll go over in a second, you know, uh, some neck pain is somewhat common, mm-hmm. but not being able to uh, lift your hand uh, is a little it's a little different. Uh, real, real quick on the, the stress thing, I was thinking about this afterwards, and I have had cases where I found found the uh, the uh, option uh, to <laughs> thanks or the opening, I should say, to talk to a patient about pain science, and because I had been seeing them for a very long time for their low back. And I showed him a video. Uh, I spoke to them about the research, and I was able to elicit certain techniques to teach this person about it, and, and they were very receptive. They did come back to me with a question where it was hard for me to answer, and sometimes when we talk about um, you know, stress management, what does that mean? Like, you know, The person was like, all right, this, is, this all makes sense to me, but what can I do about it? Hmm. And so that was that was an interesting question to me because right now there is there is no system that is being taught to us as physio- physical therapists to teach these people what to do about that. We can give them information about it and that can also decrease the pain response, but this pa- this patient typically has seen like a dozen or so specialists and they're seeing you, you know, for a little while and and they don't want to see one more other person to get a, a you know, additional plan. So um, I think a good start with New York stress, for instance. Like, what is New York stress? I mean, that's like so much, so much shit. There, <laughs> you walk around in the streets, and I remember you put me on, the, or you made me a little bit more aware of this one time. Where we were we were having conversations when we were walking in between classes in school, and we were down at Twenty Third Street. Toro College is uh, right, kind of the heart of where the city is, and besides Times Square and things like that, we're close to Herald Square. We're close to. I'm not sorry, not Harold Square, like Macy's and stuff like that. So a lot of traffic, a lot of like, you know, a lot of things going on at the same time. Maybe a fight's breaking out. Maybe, uh, you know, there's some homeless people bothering people here or whatever it may be. There's just so much stimulation and we become a little bit desensitized to that. But the cost of that desensitization desensitization i can't say that word god, god. the cost of that <laughs> yeah desensitizing is, desensitizing <laughs> is going to be an increase of our uh of our central nervous system right. and what that means is we're going to unknowingly be more alert we'll have higher blood pressure higher heart rate uh we'll be a little bit more aware of those stresses subconsciously so that kind of spikes our uh our response to things such as pain and sensation so what does that have to do with what we're talking about? So management of all that stuff is understand that's happening, number one. That's important to Aware- know. Be, awareness. Be, awareness. And then also what's going to help you, what has been shown to help you decrease that sensitization of the body or that uh, subconscious um, at, you know, being more sensitive to things? Well, all of the things that relax you. So we're talking about sleep. We're talking about uh, doing things that, cause joy or like bring you joy um make you happy things like that so uh, also a, a healthy diet 
is going to help you with that. And a healthy diet, that, that could be a very broad term or a very broad thing for some people. But in general, it means like real foods, um, uh, you know, decrease your amounts of stimulants. So like coffee, alcohol, um, medications that either bring you up or down or supplements that bring you up and down. Um, things like that. Exercise, obviously this, there's a spectrum of exercise. If you do like a high intensity workout, that's going to maybe increase your sensitization. But if you do a workout that is giving you, uh, you know, the right endorphins and um, bringing your body levels to a certain point and not bringing you over and causing damage, then that, that's going to help you out. So all those things, if you keep track of those basics, food, alcohol, sleep, happiness, uh, stress, things like that. If you rate those things on a daily basis, then you can, you, that you can begin to understand the connections. So like once you keep a journal of that, or if you may mark it in your phone, whatever it is, I'm sure there's an app that can help you with this. Um, meditation is another thing too. Yeah. I would say meditation would be, you know, yes, meditation would be something to help you with stress and also just make you a little more aware yeah. Um, there's also tons of research on breathing, which ties into meditation. Oh yeah, breathing. But um, the ability to, you know, breathing is one of the only um, functions of the body that is under volitional, uh, conscious control and unconscious control, mm-hmm. and it's often said to be the kind of the gateway into the nervous system. Um, so there's tons of research that shows. That I think it's five breath cycles a minute, mm-hmm. for anywhere from three to five minutes induces a bit of a parasympathetic um, response, which is um, relaxation and rest and relaxation or rest and recuperation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, something as simple as giving patients a a structured breathing exercise Mm -hmm. um, is helpful. And often, you know, it's a a gray area and it's a touchy subject for many, you know, uh, but it's definitely a primary question. I know Lee and myself ask uh, mostly every patient is, you know, how's your stress level? Typically, um, I would say a majority of the time, it's like, oh, it's fine. I'm fine. No stress. <laughs> Nobody you know, knows. I'm sleeping I, four hours, four hours a day. That's all you good. need. I had like 12 <laughs> cups of coffee today. <laughs> yeah, so people are- Their phone um, starts to ring. Right. What? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, I, I get it. I get it regularly. Yeah, I, I see it regularly. And it, it's, um, it's a bit of an art to tippy-toe around that. And obviously, when you gain- trust and a rapport with your patient, you'll be able to kind of uncover more. But something as simple as, and you, you tell them, tell them about the research, let them know that, about the whole nervous system and that, you know, with neck pain, you know, chicken or the egg, I usually start off with that mm-hmm. maybe your neck pain is increasing your stress level, which we know pain does. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's the reverse, but we're going to start here. Yeah. Um, I, I've had also patients, and me, uh, bet you have too, that they get very offended by hearing this information. Yes, and they then that you get the misinterpretation, which we met, uh, mentioned before. It's all in my head. No, it's it's not. It's not in the head. It, it's it's your body as a whole, and this is a, a this is you know, it's it's not just them. It's not just a unique bad thing that's happening to them. It's everybody. It's it's me. It's Eric. It's it's it's. That happens every. I, I've I've had I don't know how many concussions in my athletic career, probably like a dozen or so. I have really severe neck pain on occasion, and it's coincidentally when I'm 
and under high stress. Like I, I'll right. go to jujitsu and get choked out a bunch of times. My neck feels fine. It gets cranked. I got a bone arrow choke the other day and uh, a really aggressive one by a really big guy. And it felt sore for a moment, but like in my head, I was like, oh, that's going to cause some pain the next day. And sure enough, it didn't. I go and I have like a weekend of stress where I have to do a bunch of different things. Don't do anything new physically. And my neck is killing me for three days and I can't turn my neck. So it's this is something that can easily be misinterpreted. But uh, I, I would say rest assured that there's easier ways than the. The mythical path of mechanical, like we're gonna we're gonna find out with, um, you know, A through Z structures are causing it through A through the A through Z methods, and then we have to figure out those two connections together and then make up a story. It's more likely that your system has become a little bit more sensitized, and like your low back, your neck is very close closely connected to your your nervous, nervous system. system. Yeah, and I think with the neck and the back. Um, there is tons of research, I think, with the pain science also that there are higher, uh, lower pain thresholds in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and as Lee said, it's closely linked to our peripheral and central nervous system. Yeah. I mean, our neck is... Uh... About to sneeze. <laughs> I'm moving away from the mic. <laughs> it's about... it's. Um... Thing about our, our our neck is the uh, it's like the gatekeeper to our life source. Right. Our one of our fellow physical therapists, Luke Bongiorno, uh, I've heard him give an analogy to patients, and he uses it quite a bit. And I I appreciate it in the sense that like, you know, he's trying to give a an importance to the neck. He's like, I could take your arm, and you could still be alive. I could take your fingers, you could still be alive. I could take your foot, and he go, he goes on. He's like, but if I take your head. You're not going to be alive anymore. <laughs> uh, uh, and, it's a good analogy. And, nice, it, nice, and, and still calmness. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I I get it because right, I, right, I right. you know I work with him, and obviously he doesn't say it like that. Right, I'm, right, I'm right, giving right, a, right, right, a little right. drama to it. <laughs> he's a lot he's a lot better at this stuff than I am. Um, but the point would be that it, it's an important artifact in your body, and uh, there's a reason why it could be very sensitive. It houses our brain, houses our cranial nerves, houses. Uh, where our, our spinal cord starts, um, brainstem. Yeah, I mean that that's some very powerful stuff. Uh, yeah, and so to go over the, um, you're talking about the red flags, like right? Things. W- let's say if you do have neck pain, you do have certain symptoms. When when should you be concerned, or when should you seek um, help or an examination? Well, Eric mentioned like let's say if you can't lift your arm, so. That's a pretty serious thing where you're demonstrating some some pretty big weakness. And that weakness usually will come after some sort of insult, right? So let's say if you have a car accident and uh, usually if you have a car accident, you go to the hospital, you're going to have some imaging done. So they might already see what's going on. But also there's all systemic things that can happen that can affect your nerves from the neck and cause pain and then cause frank motor weakness. Um, now, I had a case that was really interesting a while back. Um, <clears throat> and this individual, it was really fascinating to me because I've seen a lot of patients from this doctor. And they were never, he was n- never aggress- as aggressive as I saw with this patient. Um, this was an older individual. Uh, the symptoms that came on are how, how the, um, the background to his injury happened was one time he went for a massage massage was fine it was a little deeper than normal 
the next three days he started to get and he he described it as light tingling in his fingers and those that tingling lasted for a couple weeks did not get worse did not have any frank motor weakness had full strength uh, because it lasted a couple of weeks, he decided to go see a doctor, and the doctor recommended to go see a specialist. They did all the imaging, and they found multi-level uh, degenerative joint, joint disease. They had found some herniated discs, but then they recommended him to get every joint of his lower cervical fused, mm. and he did it. And I saw him after the fusion. Wow. Uh, and that was fascinating. I, I've seen multi-level fusions all the time. I've never seen the entire... C3 through C7 fused and when I asked him you know the the background of the injury and he described just that and I kept asking these follow-up questions he started to get upset he's like I told you everything like this is this is what happened he's like why are you I was like well I just want to make sure we'll get the story straight but the main thing I'm looking for was like a reason why you would fuse this man's entire cervical spine now he has no movement there except for his upper two vertebrae which we mentioned already already does 50% of the rotation. Guess what? It's now going to have to be... Uh, 80%, 90%, whatever. Yeah, and do you think... We haven't talked about it yet, but right at those two joints are pretty... Uh, they're very important structures there, like the vertebral artery, and if they start to get stressed at that joint, there's not really much you could do. You're not going to fuse that sucker um, unless you have, like, this, you know... Fracture. Fracture, unbelievable instability where your neck dislocates as you look down or something like that. But... So I was blown away by that. And so he, he did extremely well with therapy, which was great. Um, but I was a little disheartened to hear that they did that because of the lack of symptoms. Now, what he was told, again, fascinated me, if he didn't do this, the risk of him being paralyzed was high. And I, I was fascinated by that. This, this, this individual was not an athlete. He was active and he was older. He was kind of close to retirement. And he was healthy. Uh, no other large past medical history. And they were instilling him with a lot of fear that he was going to somehow become paralyzed spontaneously. Mm-hmm. So I was I was a little taken back by that. And I, I saw the before and after MRIs, saw the before and after X-rays. I read the reports. I know there's probably maybe some people hearing, oh, you're not able to interpret uh, imaging. Uh-huh. Well, we can actually we can identify joints and we can identify insults and things like that. Um, and there wasn't like, and he was told, he's like, they're just, you know, your, your vertebrae are just on top of each other. There's no discs and things like that. No so, discs. Yeah. It was, so did, did he get a second opinion? I don't, I don't think he did. That was one thing too. That's probably. Yeah. If, if patients that are listening to this and not to knock any, uh, obviously you, you may have chosen the best doctor in the field, mm. but when following, I mean, with any surgery, I mean, I personally, if it was myself, my mother, any friends, family, I would always get a, a second, if not third opinion. I mean, again, you may be seeing the um, top of the food chain in terms of uh, the doctor you're seeing comes highly recommended. But, you know, there's consequences to some of these surgeries. And as Lee just mentioned, I mean, if there's a risk of paralysis, the uh, question is, you know, uh, that's a strong how would that? Statement. Yeah, that's a st- very strong statement. So, yeah. I mean, mm. th- there is a risk of para- I mean, there's a risk of paralysis for us right now. Just so I g- this podcast. I mean, <laughs> building could collapse. We could break our neck. You know, whatever it is. I mean, yeah. there's a lot. So this, there's always a risk. Question is, you know, how would that happen? And is he is he that unstable? That as Lee said, is he dislocating his neck when he's tying his shoes? No. But yeah. No, it's, it was a pretty aggressive approach, <clears throat> and I was I was again taken back for, um, and he. 
he took it really well and and um he got back to full activity was full activities which was great um but yeah i mean again fusion is is not the norm treatment right now we we mentioned for the low back um and by the way that that article i was mentioning yeah, last time lumbar surgeons right yeah so that i i made a mistake on that it was uh n i h i think let me pull it up really quick so i don't get it wrong again um also a pretty large and influential association yeah and so i mean the protocol now is that they will not use lumbar fusion for treatment or disc replacement disc replacement for treatment unless it's having to do with a randomly controlled trial um but yeah so mainly we talked about the joints red flags red flags would include frank motor weakness if you do have numbness and tingling down the arm then there's a conversation about what's the extent, how often does it come on, do, have you gone through nerve tests, and the nerve tests are usually like EMG studies, nerve conduction velocity. And what's your experience with EMG studies? Are they always, or do they always offer needle versus surface? Or is uh, Most, I want to say most are needle, um, and they're, from the doctors that perform them could be very painful, mm-hmm. um, expensive, and often, I mean, unless of a, a real, there's a level of significance, right? So I think all of us have probably some delay or hyperactivity or underactivity of some kind of a nerve function, but to my understanding, it really is picking up some gross deficits. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this uh, level of significance. I know with the lumbar spine, we studied that some of those could be relatively insignificant. Um, mm-hmm. So you really have to have a, a significant damage, damage, delay, or you know, inability to work that for it to come up. So if you if you don't if you have like a minor insult or like let's say an irritation or a nerve that's causing pain down the arm, it might not even show up on the uh, EMG studies. Um, it's usually a last tier too. They usually, I mean, in order of operation, t- typically an imaging would be an X-ray, an MRI, possibly a CAT, um, and then okay. <laughs> good old CAT, and then there is some imaging. And typically for carpal tunnels, they like um, using the EMG yes. or the nerve conduction. Either of those, exactly. So, and I, I've overheard many conversations in jujitsu there's so many people right now that seem to have something going down the arm and they don't know if it's coming from their neck they don't know if it's local and that's one thing i would recommend if if you are having persistent sensations down the arm into the hand especially anything passing the elbow and it's going from the shoulder or from the neck and it's let's say greater than three months that that's a long time i i, I would get that checked out by a clinician um, and highly recommend uh, physical therapists uh, that uh, at least distinguish what's happening. That way it doesn't continue to cause any sort of dysfunction or pain. Um, i trying to find this here again. Wow. Um, we can talk about the facet joints yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, facets or even the muscles. We, we could go into the muscles, the muscles of the neck. Mm-hmm kind of have two systems you think of it as your deep deep system or deep stabilizing muscles so you have your cervical paraspinals 
you have your deep neck flexors, you have your suboccipitals, mm-hmm. you have on the deep system, what else do we have there? Yeah, so the deep neck flexors, or what we've learned is like longus coli, longus capitis, they're a, mus- they're a group of muscles that exist on the front of the vertebrae. So if you're looking at someone uh, facing them, and if you were to take all the tissues away on the front of their throat, including their esophagus, the superficial muscles that you see on the skin, then you'd, you'd get those muscles on the front of the vertebrae that really stabilize the vertebrae. And they give you a lot of support, but they usually give you support in an endurance kind of fashion. They're not a kind of they're not a muscle that you want to become like a power muscle. You're not going to like do like a quick chin tuck or something. (laughs) But um, there's actually been some really good research on um, what muscles are activated. I remember uh, Rami had a uh, a slide in one of his his things for uh, when we were in school. One of our classmates he had a picture that he found on the internet that showed what happens when you get whip- whiplash. And they had the SEMs, they had the upper traps, um, and then they had some other neck muscles as well. But the SEMs were the biggest one because they're they're very fast twitch. They control a lot of uh, rotation and eccentric flexion. So they, they will, if you were to shorten them, they would rotate you the opposite way that they're on. Uh, so like let's say your right SEM would rotate you to the left. And then it would also flex you, uh, or si- side bend you, I should say. So um, those really kick on when you have something like a car accident, a high velocity force, or you're hitting the head. You see it a lot in uh, MMA, boxing, uh, NFL. Those are the neck muscles that are going to get a lot of stress, and the upper traps, uh, things upper like that. Upper traps, scalenes, SCM. These are larger muscles. These are the muscles that we could actually see. Yeah. Um, and. Often those are low hanging fruits, low hanging fruit to uh, to treat. Right. Uh, hold on one sec. Yeah. So they found the article. Um, so it, it it was the NAH, and it was as of 2017. Um, it's no longer best practice to perform a lumbar fusion for non-specific low back pain, uh, nor a disc replacement. Which is interesting. I, I hear, th- you know, there's the, uh, if you go on to mass media or social media, uh, if, you're t- if you're reading something that might be not, not well informed, you hear how great, either, or not great, uh, how this is a norm for, like, oh, you have back pain, you got to get a fusion, you got to do surgery, you got to get that disc replaced. Well, that's not going to be the norm treatment. That shouldn't be. You should exhaust Conservative. Yeah, I find this sentence pretty troubling. So it says, thus, spinal fusion and disc replacements will no longer be routine forms of treatment for patients with low back pain. I mean, mm. routine forms, you know, those are t- two quite aggressive um, surgeries. Yeah. Um, and to call them routine is, is pretty wild. I mean, even today I was panning through the TV, and there was a laser spine surgery. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's that's a huge thing. I've CNN, seen. They have, I mean, they're doing advertisements all day. They That is interesting to me because if you listen to the words that they use, they say it's a non-aggressive. Non-invasive. Non-invasive, thank you. Yeah, non-invasive. I don't see how any sort of surgery is non-invasive. I mean, they're going to be cutting something. They're going to be infiltrating your body. In a certain way. And they're exploiting everything we're discussing on this podcast in terms of, you know, they know their target market. 
They know mm-hmm. the market, the age range. Mm-hmm. They know how debilitating it's been. They know the chronicity of it. And they touch upon this in the commercial um, for obvious reasons. But, you know, now the NIH um, is now recommending that these are not the, quote, routine treatments. I mean, the routine treatment should be just uh, sleep, sleep, rest. <laughs> Yeah, Monitor resting. your diet, be happy, right, and right. take care of yourself. Go see your local physical therapist. Yeah. <laughs> there was an interesting, I, you know, we always are talking, I, I, I do believe in the advancement of Western medicine, and Eric does too. Yes. I, I, we talked about it before. Emergency medicine, Western medicine is top game. That is the best right now. Although when, it beca- when we talk about these things, orthopedic medicine, in the Western countries, it could be a little bit dicey because there's different motivations. There's certain um, things being pushed that might not be best practice because of they haven't been looked at and they're just being backed by a lot of money or whatever it may be. Now, with that, I do think technology is merging with medicine right now in both. Uh, we ta- uh, we briefly mentioned things like CRISPR, which is this an advanced um, gene editing um treatment that they're doing uh, experimentally right now all over the world. There was an, another article that I read, and I believe the surgery was performed in South Africa. It definitely was not in the United States, um, where they 3D printed a replica of a couple vertebrae for this one patient. Mm. And then instead of doing a fusion, they put those 3D printed vertebra in replacement. So they took out the, the vertebra. Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, my fault. They left what was still intact and they took out the extremely degenerated, degenerated uh, pieces of the vertebra that were there because apparently it was fracturing. It was pretty severe where the person, it was getting up into like C1 and C2. Right. And they, they replaced those pieces on. Now, the, the whole idea was it was to not fuse the area and still have movement but also take away the degenerated bone and replace it with something like that. Now, I think that... For me, that will probably be the future of, let's say, those extreme cases where the, quote, bone stock isn't good, um, where you have tissue that it can no longer tolerate the the load of the head, the load of the back, uh, while preserving the nerves, while preserving the blood supply. That's going to be the trick. Uh, when you have neuroscientists and neurosurgeons being able to do that, that would be pretty incredible. Um, or just grow... I think another one might be just growing your own bone or regrowing a vertebrae. Or, I mean, and they're doing that now on. Um, I don't know about vertebrae, but they're doing tissue. They're doing like really, um, like Liver. livers and stuff like that uh, on mice. On mice, these <laughs> I mean, mice, these like mice. A, there was that. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture where they grew an ear, uh, like a human ear, on a mouse. On a mouse, I have not seen. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, it's so terrible. These, these mice have gone to what they go to for our. Uh, for our advancement, but right. it's you know it's got to start somewhere. As one of my patients told me, that's true. I told him, yeah, that's another side convo. <laughs> but um, the horse thing. Oh yeah, he brought up the horse thing, and he was I like, rap? yeah, he said, well, they got to start somewhere. I was like, all right, yeah, that's they cool. do. I agree with that. I mean, they, of course, they have to have an IRB review. They have to have the ethical board look at it and make sure no one's getting hurt or um, the the motivations are kosher and all that stuff um but with that it's it's interesting yeah <laughs> i overheard a conversation in the gym the other day and they were talking uh, it's trainer and a client and they were talking about movement 
and the trainer is a very good trainer and they were informing them on what the research shows about movement and this was like the first session and the guy was very excited and he just like shook his head he took a deep breath he's like such a great time to be alive right now (laughs) (laughs) Uh, sounds like i i Uh, and i agree uh, with that i i do feel like just because there's so many flaws in our system there's definitely crossroads of that meaning like yes it's fantastic there's so much information floating around but with that with that mass amount of information you're going to get a mass amount of misinformation and a lot of people misinterpreting things yeah phil i mean with all the information i guess we all have to be um practice practice a good filtering system and you know, luckily in graduate school, they definitely drilled knowing our sources, uh, our information. Right. And and on and <clears throat> and I'll go out on a limb and say that sometimes there's there is a level of intuition that comes with what what we do. Um, so yes, you take a look at the the evidence and you take out the look at the research, but also there's like an intuitive. After a while of practice and study you get to a point where you don't understand why something works. That doesn't mean you, you throw it out. Right. Um, but it is an exciting time to live with mm-hmm. all of this, uh, with all the advancements. <laughs> Definitely. And, and, and we, you know, it, we, like as Lee said, it's a blessing and a curse with all this information. I got, I got. Definitely. So we got muscles, we got joints. joints. Oh, t- we didn't talk about this at the lumbar spine. Um, in the joints... There's not just the vertebra and the discs, muscles, ligaments, things like that. There's also facet joints. So facet joints um, are on the sides of the uh, ver- vertebra, and they're literally there to help open and close certain movements. Meaning, like, let's say I uh, bring my left ear to my left shoulder. For the most part, you're going to get a general opening of the joints. If, if you could do that, I mean, in the direction of, oh. you don't have to touch the left ear, left shoulder, oh. but my God, yeah. Um, you'll get a, a general opening of the right facet joints and a general closing of the left facet, facet joints. And it's not too much to complicate that, meaning that, again, there's a lot of movement theories out there on going on what's happening, or sorry, explaining what's happening to the joints in directions of glides and things like that, but nothing's been absolutely proven. So we'll we'll stick with that. So sometimes, symptom-wise, you'll get a dysfunction at that facet joint. So let's say if you get some sort of rapid velocity injury or, excuse me, your neck starts to get torqued one way, you can irritate that joint just like any other joint. You can get some restrictions. You can get some alterations in the joint capsule. You can get some alterations in the ligaments that surround it, everything. So then th- then you start to have specific... Um, dysfunctions with that the muscles start to possibly get tight you might have some pain and since everything's really close together you might have some nerve tension changes so that could be an issue too so like there's there's uh um i remember during our study time we found that there was a research article that they seemed very proud to present it they remember they injected the saline at each facet joint and uh they had physical therapists evaluate uh, these individuals who once again volunteer to this very aggressive research study and there was a high high number of accuracy for the physical therapist. They were like 90 something percent being able to diagnose individuals with facet pathologies at what joints, very specific levels, things like that. Um, so it, it can be a source of pain in the sense that, or sorry, it can be a source of 
um, movement dysfunction, where we can, as movement specialists, we can identify those movement dysfunctions, and then we could say, oh, well, that's happening at C3, C4, right side, you have less opening over there, so on and so forth. Now, with that, our treatments would be based on improving motion there, improving that, or reducing that dysfunction, and hopefully reducing your symptoms. And those symptoms might include pain. It might not. It might just feel tight. It might just feel weak, things like that. Yeah, typically with, um, at least there's a there's a school out there, we'll go by NIOMT, right? So yeah. um, it takes a, a real close look at um, cervical facet joints. And one would often say that the point of, let's say someone comes to the clinic with pain on their left, they feel irritation on their left. Often during evaluation, you're going to find the facet joints may be a little more restricted on the right. So what that would, you know, the the thought process on this is, you know, one facet isn't moving so well, the facet pair, let's call it on the left side, may be moving a little more than it usually does, irritating the tissue, whether that's irritating the joint itself, the capsule. Again, a lot of this, it's definitely unproven. Mm. Uh, it's a nice story, um, <laughs> and it's a nice framework uh, to go by. And it, it often it often does work out where if someone has pain on the left, you treat the right side, things can clear up. You know, right. again, just as a disclaimer, the reasoning behind that, hmm. we, we're not too clear on. But in often cases, we could provide some um, relief. Yeah. I And I also, the, this is not, qual, um, this is not proven through research, what I'm going to say, but I, I do feel um, athletes to undergo quite a bit of mechanical stress on the spine and I, I, I'm very biased towards MMA, biased towards jiu-jitsu, boxing, uh, football, a- NFL. I think those individuals might have a little bit more um, success with treatments that focus on these joints and focus on the spine in general and working through the mechanical dysfunction of the mechanical restrictions. Because imagine going through, let's say, if an NFL player. They've proven through the forces they, they take in per game if they play the full game. They're they're um, bringing their bodies through a car accident multiple times in that game. Yeah, yeah. multiple is, whiplashes. Yeah, and that's incredible to me. I mean, the amount of stress is happening on their joints. It's like taking the shoulder and just taking a hammer on it and just keep hitting the shoulder with a hammer and over and over again. I mean, th- there's going to be some trauma to that area. So the the quickest way to recovery, allowing the body to do its best to heal itself, is to create that efficient environment and usually you have to mitigate certain things first to create that environment i i do believe that those athletes need a little bit more pathomechanically to help elicit that recovery or that quick recovery um so they 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 would benefit from mobilizations sometimes thrust mobilizations or you it might be known as uh, a manipulation or an adjustment i feel like i need one right now <laughs> actually i feel like I, I would benefit from a few of them uh just anecdotally my experience with uh brazilian jiu-jitsu with uh with lee man the first week uh i tried i asked uh i asked lee i was like so you know i watched a class and um i said so you feel fine? I said, I said something. I was like, so no one gets hit, you know? And, and Lee looked at me straight face. He was like, you get dinged. You get dinged. And the first, I would say, two or three months when we were working on takedown drills, um, now I, you know, 
you know, in retrospect, I understand the importance of falling and understanding how to tuck your chin. Mm -hmm. But there were times where I would get taken down and I literally felt like a bag of bones mm -hmm. hitting the floor. And again, they're, they're now, you know, in those same situations, uh, with using a proper falling technique, and it's almost like, you know, at times with stunt doubles, because there's, mm -hmm. there's a level of... Um, anticipation while you're drilling with some of these takedowns but again i mean it's the equivalent of whiplash over and over and over and and another uh lee term um although i don't know correct me if i'm wrong when you got this but tissue tolerance tissue tolerance yeah it's it's pretty pretty amazing what the body is capable of adapting to so it's a repeated stress yeah. um through the years centuries people have developed you know through more martial arts in with, with drilling and practice, your body will adapt to these stresses. Yeah, and that, I yeah, tissue tolerance is something that I think about quite a bit because I, I I reflect on when I first started jujitsu like a year ago and things that bothered me in terms of muscle pain and aches they do not bother me now and it's not because I you know sudden changed within the moment to or I'm doing something dramatically different. It's because my tissues have adapted to that stress developed whatever it is to um whatever it needed to tolerate that stress without being either injuring that area or without causing uh, a lot of sensitivity um but that's huge and I, and I feel like individuals who go through a lot of mechanical stress they would benefit from in addition doing recovery things like sleep and eating well and decreasing their stress they'd also they would do well with um a uh pathomechanical recovery or approach yeah oh, and it's you know things all of the athletes that Lee mentioned there you know they're putting they're you know mechanically putting their system under stress and and let's just take the shoulder for instance mm. you know or the neck let's go to the neck <laughs> you're, you're getting jostled maybe those facets do shift and, and i hate to use the the word align but uh a relative thing i, I would say it takes the system off its norm, right? Uh, whatever that is for the individual, and, and for the, some of the athletes that he just mentioned, they, they they would seem like anomalies, you know, in terms of what they're able to to withstand. Right. Uh, that's why we watch them. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And it, to speak about the alignment issue, there has been very little uh, high quality studies to show there is a misalignment when there's an right. injury or the term subluxation that's a, a very inaccurate term for what is happening to the spine you know people have this misinterpretation of you have c1 through c7 and c6 is sublux the likelihood of that happening is so slim and it's most likely not the cause of what's going on I, my advice would be in general i would erase that from your vocabulary and also from what you think that's what's happening because when we hear that word what's the first thing you think of subluxation dislocation yeah uh, you know uh, trauma um a literal separation, separation of, of where stuff. it's from and that's not happening that's not happening if you had a subluxation in your let's say your cervical spine anywhere along those levels it, you wouldn't be able to hold your neck properly i mean that that would be a very um intense dysfunction and and it would be you would be injuring your spinal cord i mean you, you would be pressuring your spinal cord in such and a way. And usually with these red flag, that would definitely be a red flag. Mm -hmm. uh, our, I mean, I've, I've encountered a couple of individuals that have had 
falls down a staircase. And when you see them in the clinic, they are they're very guarded in terms of what they can do with their, their head and neck. Mm-hmm. They are they're typically sympathetically driven, so they may be sweating. Um, uh, they're very, again, very cautious. And, and again, the brain sends signals. You know, you could tell the person will be, tell you something's wrong. You know, mm-hmm. and those are the individuals that may have a hairline fracture in their dens, uh, something pretty dramatic. Right. Yeah. So we're talking about fractures. I mean, that that's pretty serious. That we have when we talk about the um, the body when it comes to fractures, and us as um, physical therapists, quote, manual therapists, or uh, ther- uh, sorry, clinicians do not utilize MRIs and X-rays to diagnose. We, we use, our diagnosis comes from a physical exam along with the history of the injury and uh, how they respond to treatment. So one of the ways that we could screen for any sort of fracture in the body is using these rules that have been established through different bodies of research. And for the neck, the most accepted group of rules are the Canadian cervical spine rules. Um, and so there's, again, the, the, learning these rules are interesting because it gives you perspective on what needs to happen to show a high percentage of having a neck fracture. And then when we're talking about neck fracture, we're talking about either one or two vertebra have undergone like a hairline fracture or sometimes um, a fracture across the body, things like that. So we're looking for a certain age group. We're looking for paresthesias in the extremities and usually we're looking for both extremities we're not looking for um a radiculopathy or pain going down or sorry numbness and tingling going down one side we're looking for both sides usually when there's something going down both sides and maybe even going into the hands numbness and tingling that usually means there's something happening with the spinal cord usually so like there's you have the spinal cord which is pretty central and then you have the roots on the side and so when you inflict a an insult to a root you'll have symptoms going down to that same side but when you inflict an insult to the spinal cord you're going to have kind of an unbiased bilateral yeah so both sides would be numb tingling pain also there may be some dizziness lightheadedness um, nausea uh double vision or that's more of a that's more the artery yeah um but you yeah so yeah just canadian i'm sorry the canadian rules the Canadian, all these rules are usually from not the United States. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, they do a good job of researching these things. Um, it, you also have a history of a dangerous mechanism of injury. So like a fall from a large height, motor vehicle accidents at speeds that are greater than 100 cl- uh, kilometers an hour, or a rollover accident or an ejection accident, uh, of a cyclist collision. So if you're on your bike and you have a collision at that kind of speed motorized recreation vehicle accident, all those things. If you have any of those things, um, those are risk factors. Uh, but you can move your neck, rotate it more than 45 degrees each side, then you wouldn't have an x-ray or you wouldn't, there would be no need for an x-ray because the research and the percentages or uh, likelihood of you having the fracture is very low. If you, um, if you cannot move your head greater than 45 degrees in either direction and you have those risk factors, two or more, then you would be required to get an x-ray. So there'd be a, a high likelihood of something going on there with your with your vertebra in terms of a fracture. Um, if you can't even assess those 
range of motion because there's so much pain or hesitation, then you'd also be required to get x-rays because there's something going on that, that the body is telling uh, that they don't want to move the neck. So why is rotation so significant? Rotation elicits so many different motions in the vertebra, and more specifically, C1, C2. So that's what they're really looking for. When there's something going on, when those first two vertebra are insulted or injured, then there's going to be compromise and really serious structures. So we're t obviously talking about the spinal cord, talking about your one of your major blood supplies up to the brain, your vertebral arteries. We're talking about your brain stem, some of your cranial nerves. There's all around there that's very important to make sure that that is not being compromised. That would be a medical emergency. Again, the, the symptoms on these are, are quite evident. I don't think, uh, well, I shouldn't say, maybe some individuals shrug, could shrug some of these off, but usually these symptoms bring people to doctors, ERs. Yeah. It, you know, it's pretty significant. Yeah. Yeah, so that would be one of the red flags. We're, we're, this is one of the things that we're looking for when we're trying to treat patients with neck pain and um also rule out serious things. The other one that we keep mentioning is something called the uh, vertebral basilar insufficiency, or VBI. Uh, now, VBI, um, in relation to mobilizations and manips and thrusts and things like that, they're kind of closely related. So there are uh, our arteries that feed the head, our vertebral arteries in the back, they run up along our cervical spine, and then they get intertwined or inside of our vertebra on C1 and C2. Or mainly, it's uh, C2, I believe, right? You get that treacherous turn? Yeah, that's exactly. It's funny. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of turn, C2. Yeah, yeah so the, uh, if you imagine the vertebral artery going straight up, and then when it hits that second cervical vertebrae, it goes through the vertebrae on the side, and it makes a really sharp turn in towards the skull or in medially. Now, that sharp turn is uh, also it's protected, but also it can be uh, more susceptible to injury. So if you imagine rotating as far as you can to one side, you start to tension one side of the, vertebra, uh, the vertebral artery, and then you kink the other side or kind of loosen it up. So that kink can sometimes cause a decrease in blood flow, and some people will have symptoms of uh, dizziness, Without anything else, some people might have sensations of instability, things like that. And then more serious, if there's a history of other cardiovascular things going on um, or uh, kind of an older individual with the tissues that's not as tolerant as a younger individual, other things can happen like a stroke or uh, an injury to that artery itself. Now, that's very rare. And, and what it's not just dizziness that you would have to be concerned about. It's a whole other slew of things. Um, that you'd have to be concerned about. And that in itself, there, there hasn't been a solid group of screening tools for that. They've had a lot of people, the research that we've been exposed to, the clinicians who have different systems they like to use just because they've had um, no instances of a stroke or anything like that or um, some sort of insult to the vertebral artery. So, I mean, that we we just basically have people do active range of motion into rotation, then we gently do passive if they're able to tolerate it, and we're not looking for anything specific, but it's more about their history. Their history has a little bit more to do with the vertebral uh, basilar insufficiency. Yeah, we were else. taught, I think we were taught in school, I mean, there, there are specific tests to 
to kink, I mean, to, to create the insufficiency. Right. Uh, as Lee said, you know, rotating the head to a certain degree and then extending, you know, you're essentially crimping aside. And I guess what you're looking for is to kick on the neurological symptoms. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's something that's not done in practice, um, I would say, regularly. Do you see anybody using No. So uh, I mean the the risk for it is really high. If you do the test itself, you're basically if you do the strict test, I don't even remember what this, the test was called uh at this point. I had a weird name. Um yeah, where the arm would drop. Yeah. Yeah, we, we don't use it. <laughs> yeah, not, we don't use it, but the um yeah, so when when you there is a dec- decision instrument that we were um Oh no, that was for your ALR ligament. But if these signs and symptoms kick on, that if you suspect uh, a VBI, chances mm. are you probably wouldn't be using the uh, manipulate. You know, it's a you wouldn't be using certain techniques based on your you know your clinical call. Yeah. Um, and I would always play it safe on that. What's the uh, S A H? Oh, uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage. Got it. Got mm-hmm. it. Uh, horrible stuff. Yeah. So I mean, the other. Things that we look out for, obviously, signs of stroke, because you can see that in the neck and the face. Um, but luckily, the, there's a lot of information on stroke, you know, difficulty speaking, difficulty swallowing, um, kind of an unawareness where you are, uh, unnormal, alert, uh, sorry, not, not being alert, things like that. Um, Talk to your patients. Yeah. If you see a change in some kind of cognition... I mean, while while working on the neck, a good practice would be to, you know, have a, not that you have to have an all-out conversation, but, you know, keep communication with them, Take keep an eye on their eyes, keep an eye on any kind of uh, involuntary movements of the hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are all, you know, practices that one should use when uh, when working on the neck. Exactly. Really important. And in terms of a manipulation on the neck, there's actually what we read in our um, most recent review of all the research for orthopedic certification. There was no, there's no current evidence on an excess risk for someone having a stroke after a manipulation at the C1, C2, or this, the uh, occiput and the C1. Now, that was interesting to us. There's, there's definitely been some cases that have developed because of uh manip there but it, they're usually few and far between thank god um and i remember speaking to someone who attended a physical therapist who attended a course that all they did was manip so they did cervical thoracic and lumbar and they presented also this current research that we were exposed to saying the same thing there was no increased risks for a stroke when you do a manip on the cervical spine now with that there's also been a lot of research rec- that i i have been exposed to that shows uh, there's been no significant difference between non-thrust or, or non-manip on that area and also a manip in terms of range of motion, pain, uh, mobility, and things like that. So what they're saying, what these research individuals are saying is that you can get the same result without the risk doing this non-thrust. Now, I think that's pretty solid. And again, as I mentioned before, I think there's certain populations like the athletes that we're talking about that would benefit from a more aggressive approach along with being screened for risks and things like that. Um, But in general, uh, it's 
right now it's not significantly better to get a neck manipulation to reduce your pain and discomfort versus not getting a, a manip and just getting a regular mobilization. Yeah, and a little side note on that is, you know, any manipulation, whether it's a lumbar, thoracic, cervical, even some hip manips, ankle manip, if you have a, a, a patient that has a relatively high level of anxiety, mm, um, yeah. it's probably, you know, whether that anxiety is around their condition or they're just generally a high anxious person, you know, manipulations may not be the best, the, the best because they're going to have a... First of all, they may be a little guarded. Uh, secondly, you know, in in theory, you should be announcing when you are gonna. You should ask for permission prior to manipulation. Yeah. Um, and again, it elicits some stuff. Are you gonna crack me? Mm. What are you, are you gonna adjust me? You know, there's a lot of preconceived, a lot of preconceived notions about what a manipulation is. Um, Whenever I do one, uh, I I really I love to uh, do. A high uh, high velocity thrust on the thoracic spine. I think it's same, it's same, yeah. one of my um, well. First of all, it's a dramatic result in terms of shoulder discomfort, neck discomfort, sometimes low back discomfort, and improving um, or, or decreasing symptoms. But I will get uh, and I, and I ask the patient if this is okay. If we do this, we might get a little crack. With it. And they'll usually have a funny comment about, "Oh, you doing chiropractic stuff now?" And there is no. This is only chiropractic. This is manual therapy interventions and again what why we're using high velocity thrust that's what it's called so when when you do immobilizations it's graded it's graded to one through four and then five would be the high velocity thrust and so that's the proper term for it and we we try to use it the best we can in terms of naming it but that the question what's happening when the, when they we do that we, they still don't know exactly the theory is right now and i would agree with it there's a neurophysiological effect on the area that's thrusted plus on your central nervous system. So um, there was this one research article that I always talk about with patients because it's easy to access. It's also easy to read, and it was written by some um, lay people who are non-clinicians. And, or so the review of the research was written by the lay people. They did, um, I think, diagnostic ultrasound on the knuckles, and they would have <laughs> people pop their knuckles. And they would want to see what happens under the diagnostic ultrasound. They'd slow down the video and stuff like that. And it was interesting. They saw a flash of light go across or an artifact. They usually call it on imaging. An artifact go across the ultrasound before the audible pop. Now, there's a different theory. Everyone was like, oh, because light travels faster than sound. Sure. But they slowed down. <laughs> it's not like it had to, like, the sound had to reach a microphone that was, like, centimeters away. They slowed down the video so they can freeze frame it. But literally the, the pop be- comes before the audible crack or the actual whatever's happening. So there's different theories of what's going on. But basically um, they still do believe that there's a release or there's a cavitation of the joint capsule that sends some sort of signal to the nervous system that changes either muscle tension, ligament tension, uh, cellular activity, all these other things uh, in that area. And then I think in addition, when you do it on something as big as the spine, especially the lumbar spine, because you usually get a really loud one, you also get the feedback from the from the patient's ear uh, and the, 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 ther- the, sorry, the therapeutic ritual of the setup. I mean, it's a very dramatic setup. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. fly them on their side, palpation. You're going you're gonna to 
assess the movements of the subconsciously. There's so many things going on with a patient. What's going on here? It, it, I did it yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what? Are you going to pop me? And I'm like, nope. I just pre-manipulative hold. I just For the lumbar. lumbar. Yeah. yeah. And, and that in itself, it, we a lot of therapists don't understand that doing the setup and, and do, having this huge focus on this movement and position, that is very powerful for the subconscious, for for them. Meaning that they know something serious is happening, and then when they hear the pop, they feel a certain way. Then it reinforces that large effect. Then you're going to have even bigger effect neurophysiologically. So they they don't know exactly what's happening mechanically, but when it ha- when it occurs to the nervous system, for sure they're they're decreasing sensitivity to that area, improving motion, decreasing muscle tension, all that stuff. So it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, so the research, as Lee mentioned shows that there's not much um, lasting change from serv- – well, there's no difference between – in randomized controlled trials, uh, cervical, either high or low to the cervical spine, uh, no difference between manipulations, non-manipulations, exercise, and I think there was another uh, variable there. I think they talked about thoracic. Thoracic. Thoracic had more – It had the same – I think with the research that we showed, it had the same – um, effect as doing a cervical manip. So, and there was one research article that combined the two, and that had the best in comparison to a- exercise alone. And there's some, there is a criteria on a thoracic manip with cervical pain, and I believe it has to do with the radiculopathy. How far down, if there is, the 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 duration of pain yeah so the for a thoracic thrust for neck pain six variables wow uh less than 30 days duration no symptoms distal to the shoulder got that all right extension does not aggravate the symptoms which makes sense because when you do a thoracic manip you're most likely going to force some extension um their fear based on the fear avoidance behavior questionnaire is less than 12 for physical activity and I believe it was at a 60. Right. Yeah, so it's so pretty low. And it, this ties into the anxiety thing absolutely. that I mentioned. Yep. Um, they have diminished upper thoracic kyphosis at T3 through T5. And just to review, there's 12 thoracic vertebrae, all uh, named T. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the cervical extension is less than 30 degrees. So meaning that there's a restriction, but it, it's not aggravating the symptoms. So uh, if three are present, this will increase your su- success from 54% all the way up to 86%. Uh, yeah, we so both, I think we've both seen um, a lot of success with this approach, for yeah. sure. I mean, um, yeah, I think uh, it's, a good, it's a good place to go mm-hmm. uh, as long as you check your boxes off prior to the technique. Right, and you make a good connection with the patient so you can explain to them what's happening. As That's opposed it. to just cracking the back. <laughs> just, aren't you just going to mobilize me? What yeah, I've, I've um, you know, I'll share a story. I, I definitely had a patient with um, some lower back pain, relatively controlled. She didn't seem to be symptomatic. She didn't appear to be too um, anxious about her injury. She just wanted some help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, second or third treatment, she was doing well. She was getting better. And, you know, I saw her thoracic spine was restricted. And as I was working on her, I just went in and did a quick manipulation, mm-hmm. after which she kind of 
screamed a little. She started to cry. Oh. And she was like, what did you just do? I feel more pain in my back, my lower back now. So, needless to say, big mistake. Um, She never came back. Um, We had a good rapport, and the doctor that was referred her to me, I had a good rapport with too. But, you know, it was just a lesson learned. I mean, I should have communicated what I was doing. Right. And, you know, I misjudged her her response, which... You know, no, we we could never fully understand how someone's going to respond to a treatment, but um, I did not go through the appropriate measures to get that done. But we're here now. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, um, let's see. But the other thing I was going to say, the thoracic spine is interesting because um, there's a a large connection to our, I believe it's our sympathetic trunk. Yes. There. Yes. Um, and what that what we mean by that is there's two main drivers in our body in terms of hormones. For the most part, if you wanted to simplify things, it's parasympathetic and sympathetic. Um, of course, there's more, but those are the two major ones that will elicit catalysts of different hormone releases. Sympathetic is basically our, our you know, someone once explained it to me, our, our gas pedal. Mm. And the parasympathetic is our brake. So what that means... When you exercise, for instance, you want an increase in blood pressure, you want an increase in heart rate, uh, you want to increase in all the hormones to help you become a little bit more energetic. And to allow that to happen, you need uh, your parasympathetic to elicit certain changes. So you need to get that activated. Um, And then the paras, uh, sorry, the the sympathetic needs to get that activated. Now the parasympathetic is the one that's going to decrease your blood pressure, decrease your heart rate, and release the hormones that will help you slow your body down a little bit to recover. Um, and in the thoracic spine, there's a large connection with the nerves uh, all the way through the top thoracic into the sympathetic portion. And so when we start to change movement or release pressure there, you're going to have a slight change in those outputs, apparently. So when we do things like a thoracic m- manipulation or a thrust, it can sometimes affect that for sure, how you feel how much energy you have, um, and definitely pain response. Huge pearl. That work on that thoracic spine it's, yeah. uh, connects to a lot. I think it'll definitely have its own episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, for sure we'll go through that. Uh, headaches is another big one for neck pain. And this another common thing I see with my chronic neck pain patients is uh, the increase in headaches or persistence of headaches. Now, there's a usually a misinformation regarding migraines and headaches. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, so many people that I, a lot of patients that I treat, when I ask them enough questions and they let me know that they have a history of migraines, they typically don't have the symptoms that are migraines. For migraines, categorized as migraines. More of a tension headache. Tension headache, um, yeah. And possibly I, dehydration. Yeah, and and they're already on like a whole slew of medications. Um, so it, it's interesting. So with a migraine, you typically have to have a certain um, prerequisite of things to, to kind of categorize as a migraine. The whole idea of having an aura before a migraine, that's important, meaning that you get a warning sign um, whether it be neck pain, whether it be a sensation of lethargy or whatever it is, and then you get the migraine. And once the migraine comes on, it's usually 
kind of a full force tensioning of, of the head. And you usually get other things like sensitivity to light, um, you know, an inability to sleep. Nausea. Nausea, like all, all the systemic symptoms or um, constitutional symptoms. So that you that that all has to go together to be diagnosed or at least categorized as a, as a migraine. Yeah, you know, within migraines, there's a lot of sub categories. Whether it's a hormonal, it could be vascular. Um, the different triggers to migraines, um, but one needs to tease out if it's actually those reasons or some kind of what's called a cervical genic headache. Exactly, um, and that could be from a. A multitude of things, whether it's tension, whether it's a suboccipital nerve, um, that's another theory, right? I'm not sure how that. Yeah, plans so the out. the greater occipital nerve is right underneath our smaller suboccipital muscles, and so the whole theory is, if you're extremely tense in those muscles, you're going to get some increased pressure on the greater occipital nerve, and that apparently is a thing, meaning that a lot of um, servogenic headaches come from that increased tension there. But there's uh, stronger research to show when you have a limitation in your upper cervical vertebrae, again, the C1, C2, that has a greater connection, at least a correlation, to having a headache, a cervogenic headache, meaning we'll release or we'll improve that motion at that joint, and then you'll get a diminishing of your symptoms or your headache. Um, and it's usually unilateral or, or one-sided, and it will kind of go along the um, the top of the head and to the front of the forehead, and it won't last for days, and it's usually more... It's associated also with neck stiffness and neck limitations. And to tie in, and to tie in um, what we were talking about previously, it, it's very common with whi- whiplash because whiplash mm-hmm. typically... I mean, it could affect anything, but C1, C2, typically there's some stress to that region. So... With a whiplash or a trauma, uh, a traumatic injury to the neck, there definitely could be some headache, uh, headaches associated with it. You went to a course when you were in school. Oh, cervical genic, yeah. The, uh, the, it was the whiplash associated disorders. Yes. Is so it, it Tim Meadows? Tim, Jim Meadows. Or Jim Tim, Meadows? Tim or Jim Meadows. <laughs> I just remember Meadows. Meadows. Meadows, and we, we spent the whole day on, on headaches and whiplash and... Again, it was a very um, biomechanical model, mm-hmm. um, and he was very nonspecific in his treatment. I think he used, he said, let's just jiggle, <laughs> jiggle the, the cervical spine, you know, just, he was basically, and, and for those who are biomechanical, have a biomechanical perspective, mm-hmm. side glide, extend, flex, you know, and kind of shake shake the vertebrae out till they go back to where they feel Comfortable. comfortable right and he didn't really use alignment but he did use you know he he spent a lot of time on what we're discussing on red flags and mm-hmm. but um yeah, it was pretty interesting approach and everything a lot of neural tricks yeah um standing on leg and turning the head so there was a lot of tricks that um he was using but i think uh, at the bottom line is identifying the source of the headache and it could be a bit of a you know with we're talking about it easily, but it may be a quite a process for a person to get the right clinicians to diagnose this. Because if you know mm-hmm. you go to a headache specialist, they just might see it as blank, you know. And if mm-hmm. you go to a manual therapist, they may see it a different way, cranial sac. You know, so depending on who you go to, you may have different diagnosis. Yeah, 
And the, in the research that we read, over 50% of patients with headaches are misdiagnosed. That's um, crazy and, fact. And that's tough. I, I, and I do, the, uh, pa- the patients that I have that have headaches and they've had headaches for a while, I, I try to find my entry point, as you always say, uh, in, into giving them this information in, in terms of how they can, they might be able to tease things out. But it can be challenging and also um, counterintuitive for them in the sense that they already feel kind of a lack of control. And I think usually give them giving them more information that they don't know what to do with can also increase that lack of control. Yeah. So I try. I, I attempt to, you know, ask. I ask them to maybe find a pattern. I do, there's one patient I'm thinking of right now. They have a very strong uh, onset of symptoms when they fly. And I, I ask them, what do you do before you get on the plane in the sense that uh, what's going through your head? And they usually describe a very st- stressful situation. They don't like flying. Like, oh, I don't gosh. think anyone likes flying for the most part. Um, but that, And, of course, getting to the airport, going through uh, security, packing for it, trying to get your flight on time, and then all of a sudden getting on there and getting pushed around by people and things like that. That's going to be a very stressful situation. So then I, I say, well, if you find this connection between that and all these terrible symptoms, how could you mitigate that stress? And that's a whole nother thing. I mean, that's like you have to start uh, ta- uh, you have to start changing things in your mind, meaning like, all right, well, I, how many times have I, because for me, I, I always get stressed when I travel. I hate traveling. I haven't traveled. I, before I met my, I, before I started dating my current girlfriend, um, I, haven't, I hadn't traveled that much at all. And she loves to travel, and we've traveled quite a bit since, Trip, uh, yeah, and and for me, it was so stressful to even just for the actual part of the travel, just because I'm such a an anal retentive person when it comes to time, when it comes to being, you know, doing, you know, packing the right things and stuff like that. So they would stress me out, and I finally learned, like, uh, in one case in particular was when we were, we went to the Philippines, and when we came oh, back, I get back. Yeah, yeah so I, we were. Um, I didn't do anything crazy while flying, but obviously going to somewhere like Asia or the Philippines is very long and you're sitting for a long time. And uh, I, we came back to JFK. It was like three in the morning. We arrived and we were in customs, I think for an additional three hours or something crazy like that. It was a long time. There was some sort of backup. So we were, we went from sitting for like 17 hours to standing for three hours. And then the stress of just going through that, not knowing what we're what we were gonna do, like how like how long it was gonna take to go through. I was in so much back pain. When I got home, I could barely stand up. I had extreme difficulty standing, um, and so I, I literally got on the bed. And it wasn't until we got to the apartment that I was like, I can't move now. I can't move. And luckily, um, my girlfriend is an acupuncturist, and she did some aggressive needling, did some massage, and I was able to stand up and walk around for a little bit. But I thought I was going to have to go to the hospital because I was getting bilateral leg symptoms. I was getting all these other things that I know are red flags. Uh, but I look back at it now, and it, it was an extreme stress response. There was no solid path of mechanical thing that happened because I, a couple of days later, I was fine. Um, and also, there was I didn't have a car accident on the plane. Right, right. <laughs> I, the plane I, didn't crash. You know, right. Yeah. Um, so it, that I think the same thing goes for this and and like headaches. If you can start to identify things, you'll be able to monitor that as things go on. And it's not like we haven't traveled since then. We've traveled a bunch of times, and even though the flights haven't been sixteen, seventeen hours long, I have I don't have back pain now, and I, and I, I I'm l- way less stressed out because I know in my head, what's the truth 
I've never been late for a plane, knock on wood. <laughs> so I'm not, if I do the right things or if I'm doing what I'm doing now, I'll be fine. And that's like one thing I could check off my mental list. And then the other thing is, is I haven't really gone somewhere and completely forgot to pack something. No. I've been fine. And, and also, you know, just another, uh, we always do, my wife and I always do this when we, before we travel, mm-hmm. are we missing anything? And then I always say, well, if we're missing something, we're not going to the desert. Right. You know, if we're missing... And you're not a special brush, agent or something. Right, yeah. I'm not <laughs> packing guns and, and, and poison and whatever the hell a spy carries. Right. Um, no, it, it could be purchased wherever. Right. right. I mean... Yeah. But um, this headache, headache, uh, stress connection, mm-hmm. huge. Um, that facial pain, that's another... Oh, my uh, God, yeah. We talked about that in school, the AKA suicide pain. Yeah, it's, it's the handful of uh, Lee, 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 at one point, Lee was a TMJ specialist. Oh my God, that's right. (laughs) And he was getting all the TMJ patients. But facial pain um, from the trigeminal nerve is quite um, debilitating, interesting, and huge stress connection. Yeah, trigeminal Uh, neuroglia. Neuroglia? No, that's neuralgia. 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 That's really, um, yeah, it's it's pretty extreme. And again, it it, it, taking a look at some of the innervations and and just clinching. I mean, so there's a huge connection between facial pain, cervical pain, tension, stress. Yeah. Oh, and and, uh, in terms of uh, the name, it, it a lot of people will say I have TMJ. Which is the equivalent of saying, I have knee, hmm. I have ankle, <laughs> I right. have hands. So when when you say, that if there's something going on with a jaw and you have temporomandibular pain, it's usually called TMD uh, or temporomandibular disorder and or jaw pain. And th- those can be some, We uh, when I first started working, the owner of the clinic, it, that was his specialty where he used to teach this stuff to... Uh, I think podiatrist in New Jersey, but he he was a teacher of temporomandibular disorder. Podiatrist? It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to wait, wait, because they have to learn about everything. Like, all right, all right, cool. I'm like, all right. That's I think podi- it was. I know. I believe I, it. No, I, it's the school I podiatry. Think, I remember. Right, right. New and Jersey. Man, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so he would he would teach gait, and then no, no. I'm sorry. He wouldn't teach gait. He would teach he would teach uh, neck and c- cervical and temporomandibular disorder. Wild. Uh, so he, but it, it was interesting. So he would see all these pretty serious uh, TMD patients, and then I would treat some of them. And those treatments are usually a little bit more intense because you're doing, you got the gloves on, and you're doing <laughs> intraoral releases and things like that. So uh, you're getting pretty personal with the patient. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's very it's highly connected to that stress response. So if you think about if you see someone, or even yourself, if you hear a noise or something that surprises you, what what do you do? You usually clench your jaw, raise your shoulders up. I mean, it's a very protective mechanism, and you get low. So you're you're protecting <laughs> your body <laughs> from some sort of yeah. injury or danger, whatever it is. But it's interesting to me that it, it's really focused on the neck and the head. And I think it goes back to what Mr. Bongiorno says. Is your body knows way deep down, your, your reptilian brain knows it needs to protect itself and that head needs to be protected first screw your ankle right. you can, you forget about your, your fingers that's right well i do feel that way too like the My whole f- system in jujitsu like when you take someone's back 
and you start attacking their neck, I mean, that's that's like the the cherry on the top. Uh, everyone wants to get the neck. Everybody wants that. Yeah, I was unsuccessful with that today, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, I got yeah, one it, it's a game changer. Yeah, it's a game changer. People will defend their arms and legs. But once you start going to the neck, it's a whole different level of defense. It is. And it, I, <clears> I find it so interesting because this is my own stupid thing. But I'll watch, like, uh, there's uh, one account that Joe Rogan recommended a long time ago, Nature is Metal. And it was interesting if you look at their account. They, uh, they, if you, you find the post on the date that he n- mentioned it on his podcast, they had like maybe 500 followers or something. They now have like tens of thousands of followers. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it, they, they post, the reason why it's called Nature's Metal is they post really intense things happening in nature. Oh, you show me the bird, right? Yeah, there's a lot of bird stuff. The birds are. Just savage, like the you know, and uh, Joe Rogan posts about it all the time. He's like, "You remember these these motherfuckers were dinosaurs." <laughs> the like, eagle, I, I saw that eagle. They, oh, with the goat. Yeah, with oh. the No, I saw when you, you showed me where the bird came and took the head off a chicken or something. Ooh, yeah, that was nasty. Yeah, that, and then waited, let it bleed out, and then yeah, came over. And the thing just like landed. It was like, "Are oh, you done yet?" It was like struggling. <laughs> but okay. but if you watch those videos, if you watch like a, a lion take uh, an animal and they usually wrestle it to the ground. And they'll be attacking the neck. There's this um, uh, struggle from the animal that's getting attacked. And then it all of a sudden stops. And it's not because it dies, but it knows it can't get out of this. Mm-hmm. If you watch a, jiu- a jiu-jitsu match and someone is usually you see it in no, no gi a little bit more, but you can see it in gi and they take someone's back. You see this struggle to try to defend. And then there's that moment where that individual whose back has been taken knows there's, so. no, there's nothing that they can do. They don't tap right away, but then they finally tap. Like it's 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 this really interesting thing, and I feel like it's so primal. It's in all of us um, because we are animals in a sense. We are animals, even though we can walk and we can talk and we can identify ourselves. Yeah, it, people try to separate the fact that we're animals. We're definitely animals. Definitely, and um, getting being under the gun there. That jujitsu is a good example. Mm. Um, you realize how you. <laughs> How vulnerable, how strong, and yet how vulnerable we are, yeah. um, and the neck in particular. Uh, going back to uh, it being like the life force, you know, we will do a lot of things to avoid injury to the or damage to our neck. Right, one hundred percent. To the neck, so we we knocked out the symptoms unique to the neck. Stress has been talked. Cranial nerves. Oh yeah, cranial nerves. So that there are. Um, a group of nerves in the neck that specifically um, elicit a s- our, our major functions like swallowing, taste, innervations to our tongue, innervations to our face, olfactory, olfactory <laughs> smell, our uh, our ocular motion. So the you know we have muscles that move our eyes. A lot of people don't realize that, but we do have little muscles to help us look a certain way up, down, and also dilate our eyes. Um, and that helps us change uh, lights in terms of being able to see in the dark, see in, um, during the day, things like that. And then, of course, gross motor function. We have a couple muscles that are innervated by our cranial nerves, like our upper trap uh, and our SEMs. But with that, so if there's an insult to these major cranial nerves, which is around, uh, they're all in near our brain or brain stem. So that's a serious thing that usually means some sort of vascular compromise or a.k.a. like a stroke. Um, so when we, when we do like a cranial nerve screen, which we're trained to do, 
we make sure all those things are functioning. If, if no one's ever talked to this patient about it and they haven't been diagnosed with some sort of cranial nerve dysfunction. So if we see or we suspect something in their history, then we'll look at those things. We'll be able to quickly check those things. Yeah, it's big, um, definitely a push during our last year of school, or second to last year of school, on uh, on a quick, gross cranial nerve screen for sure. Right. Um, uh, so yeah, we hit that frank frank motor weakness. Mm-hmm. That was uh, a specific case. I mean, we recently I, I've had um, quite a few uh, patients that have had cervical radiculopathies. They've had neck pain and pretty significant weakness in their extremity, whether it's the left or right. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, not both sides, but in my practice, um, I would say it comes in waves, mm-hmm. but most recently, a few patients that have had significant weak- weakness. And, you know, it's getting better, but it, it's a pretty scary... I mean, they, they've gotten MRIs, they've ruled out some horrible stuff, but it, it's a tricky thing to treat you know we yeah. we do the we do what we do to the neck to the muscles around the neck to the thoracic spine neural mobility um teaching people positions to kind of offload the tension in their system mm-hmm. uh, but it is a tricky uh, a tricky thing to deal with that as a clinician because it, it, it's not something that will change immediately mm-hmm. uh, to my understanding yeah oh yeah there was this one case i wanted to talk about was a fellow physical therapist, um, he had a manip done on his neck or the thoracic spine. I don't remember exactly which one. And he was prone. So he was on his stomach. So it was an unorthodox way to do that. I think he was doing the neck. Mm. And he immediately had pain, and then he immediately had uh, very significant fatigu- fatigable weakness in his triceps. And the way he reason why he knew that is because he was a physical therapist at the time. He was able to test it out and uh, lasted for a week, went to go see the doctor, got an MRI, and they showed a significant disc herniation and what the MRI showed, pressing on that C7 nerve. And um, they were like, we need to do surgery right away or, or else you're going to lose function of your tricep. And he had atrophy, everything, and he's a manual therapist. He decided not to. He was like, I'm, I'd rather take some really strong anti-inflammatories. I think actually he went on a course of steroids uh, to re- reduce the inflammation, reduce the, the injury state. And then he waited a couple of weeks, and sure enough, the um, the nerve function came back. Um, so that, that was interesting to me because I know that individual is being fairly conservative, um, but also the fact that he, how he, he knew how serious the surgery would be if he, if he got it. What were they gonna? They were gonna uh, laminectomy or disectomy or? I think in, in, I think they were proposing a laminectomy with a microdisectomy. Just get that cut that piece off. Whatever off. was pressing. Yeah. Now, yeah. in relation to the case that we talked about for lumbar, I, I do believe that if you are in a certain state, you you and you have the certain motivation, you can do without. If you if let's say if you had that course, you had frank motor weakness and or fatigable weakness is pretty severe, very specific to one myotome, then you can choose the conservative route. But you have to be pretty disciplined about what you're going to do. Meaning you have to take a step by step approach, and you have to be able to adhere to a certain exercise regime or movement regime for a certain amount of time, and and or be very patient with the um, uh, process because 
it's it's not gonna like you said it's not gonna happen right away it's gonna actually take some time um but f- i think for the most part there's a lot of research to show that anything disc related uh, cer- uh spine joint related there has been some pretty solid healing there whereas if you talk to someone 20 years ago there was the mindset that could never happen yeah when there's nerve damage is ir- ir- irreversible right irreversible and that's a strong absolute claim i mean as we know we're not starfish but we do have a regenerative property um to the whole system actually whole system and that is and we talked about before we said it before but just remove certain things from your vocabulary one thing i would suggest removing is the fact that broken and fixed we're not broken and we need to be fixed where we have compromise compromises we have insults but guess what does the quote fixing? Our own bodies do that. Of course, we have to put ourselves in certain states. And states. You, you mentioned a good, I like the word state, because that mm-hmm. often is, you know, it's a fluid, it's a fluid place. Um, as, as As fluid as we make it. Now, if we maintain a certain state, then there's not going to be much change. As right. The person that I was mentioning very close to my heart, mm-hmm. that uh, she expects... Uh, something external mm. to change the internal state. And I, I think there needs to be more research done on that too by itself. That in and itself, that mindset belief on the impact it is on the subconscious, that subconscious belief on the impact on the body. Like right. I, it would be so hard to test and so hard to like really well, has, fine-tune. Well, but I think when you start fine-tuning neuroscience... Yeah, uh, we'll we'll get a, we'll get a better grasp on that. I mean, right now, we're on the tip, 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 the little piece, of granular tip of the iceberg. It's true, yeah, and, th- and th- I do. They are seeing the fact that the fear um, and anxiety and things like that are having huge connections with uh, certain pains and obviously pain, uh, chemical changes, uh, biology. But I guess the whole the mindset, the the framework of um, how could you categorize somebody? How could you say like, all right, they they have this mindset. They they believe they they can break and they can be fixed versus someone else who understands that their body is an ecosystem. That would be so hard to categorize. Very psychologically. Hard. But it, it definitely goes down to. I mean, this is um, the integrated systems model with mm-hmm. Diane Lee. But mm-hmm. um, seeing where the patient is in terms of um, their perspective. Their, what's their understanding of either what's going on or what's, what do they think is going to help? I mean, that, right. that's another question that irritates some patients, but you ask a very simple question, well, what do you think is going to help you? And like, well, I'm here. You should be telling me this. Right. Or, or <laughs> some that. will say, well, I, need, I feel like I need to move. I, and often patients will tell you how to treat them. I know it sounds No, that that's a famous wild, quote. But yeah, but it's... Patients will let you know what they need. I think right. it's LB. Yeah, on that. Uh, Mr. Hookless and feel maybe. No, no. So his it, one of his classic texts. Oh God, uh, was it Maitland? Maybe it was Maitland. But he, I remember Luke put that quote up on our break room. If you listen to your patient, they'll tell you how how to get them better. Right. Um, right. And that's true. And and we saw that firsthand uh, in the small amount of patients that. Peter O'Sullivan talked to, he asked those questions. He asked the same group of questions to each patient, and each patient said the same thing, which was fascinating to me, especially the back pain patients. Right. 
they, he said, what do you think is causing your back pain? And they, they immediately all said stress. And then they go, well, sitting. But then the, the first answer was stress. Right. And he, he had the whiteboard and he was writing the stuff down. That's how a treatment should be. That, 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 uh, that whole evaluative technique of getting those things written down in front of them. And you're not doing anything sneaky. You're just, we are all accountable for our words. We all should be accountable for our words. And the same thing goes when you try to get help. You, you should be accountable for what you say. That way you know what your body's going through, what your mind is going through. Then you have a realization. I mean, these are basic psychological tactics. Right. Um, and and this, it's always geared to helping that person. So that's why, you know, when I was explaining my story with my back, I, I had ex- extreme difficulty standing, but I could still stand. And obviously I had a lot of pain uh, as I lied down, things like that. But I, I look back on those things and I have to be able to say what exactly I could do to help myself. And you had a context too. I mean, the context was a, a ridiculously long flight. Mm-hmm. You don't like traveling. Yeah. Uh, customs. You thought you were going to get locked up. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no but it, it's um. But the context, uh, understanding a patient's context, where, you know, where is this injury lie? What does it mean to them? Um, yeah. Really critical in your evaluation and and treatment of treatment because often in the evaluation. Things may not surface. Uh, maybe unknowingly, patients just withhold certain things. A hundred percent. I get that. I mean, I'm sure you do too. But I think that's an extremely common thing to have happen. If people don't know what kind of things we can examine, they're not going to tell us their past medical history. They're not going to tell us their medications. They're not going to tell us other things. And so, it takes a very skilled clinician to be able to build that relationship get that information, and also in a healthy, functional way. Right. Um, and I see it all too often that it's very non-functional how people get it. And it was, yeah, it's just things can become a little aggressive, and then you get turned off from it and things like that. So, Ask tough. the right questions. Yeah. Ask the right questions. All right. Hey, what are you doing here? So shoulders are local symptoms. We got the nerves. We went we we've covered most of this. I yeah. think of all of this. I remember when. Um, do you remember in the clinic that we used to work? There was this push for having this like card system. Like you come in, a patient came in for. Well, they use knee pain as the example. Came in for knee pain. Mm-hmm. They get a card, and on that card, it outlined exactly what they were going to go through. So like myofascial release. Da, 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 these exercises only, right. and then the therapist was going to uh, implement that. Right, and there will be a diagnosis on there too. Yeah, and, th- and that was all before the examination. Right. And I, I remember I asked a simple question, like, you haven't even examined me yet. How do you know what's going on with me? And they were so taken back by that. I don't know if you remember. I that. do recall. Oh. It was a big, a lot of, a lot of <sighs> clamoring and a lot of like, I, I people who were sitting close to me, like other clinicians, that quickly attacked. No, no. Anyway, but it was. But I was trying. To, the whole point I was trying to make was, you're taken away from what we actually do. Uh, the, the fact that you're asking us to do this clearly shows that you have no idea what we do. Yeah, so, I think it it comes down to. Uh, it, from a business owner perspective or from a marketing, it's really <laughs> always all marketing. Uh, from a marketing perspective, uh, that was horrible. Uh, marketing perspective, it was being able to pack, deliver a consistent product. And as we've mentioned, 
mm-hmm. physical therapy, healthcare in general, is not a transactional deal. Right. You're not selling tires. You're mm-hmm. not landing planes. No, we're not making tacos. <laughs> we're, not, we're not making sandwiches. <laughs> um, it's a human being. And, and yes, we need structure. And yes, we need protocols. And yes, we need systems. But uh, we can't generalize those systems to people. And, and you know, a smart individual will pick up on that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, this, this kind of, uh, they were attempting to categorize patients so that irregardless of where the patient goes within the company, who they work with, there's a consistent plan. And I think, you know, in in an optimal situation, you have clinicians that communicate with one another and that's, uh, and are able to communicate to the patient, hey, so-and-so is great. They may approach things differently, but they understand what's going on. I gave them my clinical yada 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 Mm -hmm. and let that clinician make their best judgment on treating you right right yeah i mean and i think it it really took away from the red flag situation that person might have knee pain but guess what they might have knee pain because they have back and they they have something going with the lumbar spine i remember trying to say that and it was not registering i'm just trying we're you know the amount of information that we have to kind of um coordinate and then put together and synthesize and an evaluation is, is immense especially for someone who has a complex case so why would you try to simplify it to the point of taking away from what actually is going to help them right and that was uh, that was crazy yeah i mean yeah down the road we'll uh come up with the system yeah that incorporates uh all the key points but again it, as lee said it, it's quite complex the amount of information that we have to try to ascertain from people, mm. but also to present. I mean, it, it's it's um, if done well. Now, if you you could um, you could shortchange it and then just go give someone a card, yeah. um, or you know, simplify and look at the low hanging fruit. What? How can I instill the most amount of change in this person? Is it through? some kind of technique is it through education is it through listening mm-hmm. is it through just educating the person on what you you know a different perspective mm-hmm. uh, all of those are judgment calls that, that can't be made unless um you go through it right know? yeah cool good stuff i think we covered our clinical commentary in the neck the neck is complete next week we have our first ex- guest yes i'll let lee <laughs> give you a little preview yeah we have a, a really good friend of ours he's a licensed physical therapy assistant uh his name is matt L- liberty um and he will be talking to us about a bunch of things but he's going to be super cool um and it, it'll be a very interesting perspective too because uh this used to be the old model in terms of you have a PT clinic, physical therapist doing the evals and the re-evals, and then you have PTAs implementing the treatment. And I would love to hear from him, his experience. I think he's a couple years in now, if not three years. Three years, yeah. And Two or three. working with pretty, uh, pretty big uh, patients in terms of their, uh, their athletes and stuff like that. So it should be very, pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah, so and he'll have a unique perspective in that. Um, he was once an aide uh, at a clinic we worked at, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, he was always eager to learn. I mean, let's not get into it till uh, next session. Yeah, but um, it'd be good. Signing off. All right, signing off. Thanks. Thank you for listening to a few good physios. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. 
Follow us each week while we interview guests and have clinical commentary. 